0: Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. We had a comment come in near the end of the program yesterday that I want to uh, get to you. You'll recall, up your with us, we were talked with Professor Anthony Avini from Colgate University about his new book, Apocalyptic Anxiety, Religion, Science, and America's Obsession with the End of the World. And we got this comment from Winona, who says, The author says he's not a historian, I am a historian, and I believe in some kind of apocalypse simply based on historical reality. Civilizations come, civilizations go. Our own civilization is increasingly complex and thus more vulnerable to collapse. It would be foolish not to recognize that it would take something far less than a nuclear apocalypse to bring American and Western civilization to its knees. That's from Winona. Thank you for that comment. You can keep the comments coming at our website, upr.org, or at our email, upraxis at gmail.com. welcome now to Axis, utah as we continue to break global heat records and deplete our water resources the criticism that cities like phoenix are unsustainable grows louder yet phoenix and other suburban cities those that developed around the automobile and the single family home continue to increase in population well in his new book the future of the suburban city lessons from sustaining phoenix lawyer and professor grady gamage jr takes a fresh look at what it means to be sustainable He argues that the true measure of sustainability is how a particular place deals with its particular challenges over time. And uh, he examines issues facing most suburban cities. Water supply, heat, transportation, housing, density, urban form, jobs, economics, and politics and uh, other issues. Grady Gabbins, Jr. is an Arizona native. He's practiced law in Phoenix for 40 years. He's Senior Sustainability Scholar at Arizona State University's uh, Julie Ann Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability. Senior followed ASU's Morrison Institute of Public Policy. He's been an adjunct professor at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law and the Herberger Institute for Design and Arts. Uh, he served for 12 years on the Central Arizona Project Board of Directors. He was president of the board, and uh, he's author previously of Phoenix in Perspective, Reflections on Developing the Desert. Uh, Grady Gamish Jr., welcome to the program.
1: It's good to be here. That was a long introduction.
0: That, that, that is, and as I read your biography there, I, I'm getting a little tired. You, 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 like, to, you like to do <laughs> yeah, a lot I, of different things.
1: I strive to be broad and shallow. That's sort of a goal. <laughs> yeah. that,
0: that's a great goal. I, I think I, I aspire to that. I'm not as, not as successful in doing as many things as, as you do. A very interesting uh, uh, book. I want to jump into this. This has ramifications for many cities, well, around the world, but especially in the American West. Uh, so here in Utah, we'll be, you know, t- tuning in uh, especially. Um, but I want you, maybe to, to start, I could have you read uh, the first page of the prologue.
1: Um, sure. Glad to. Um, so the is called Getting Through the Haboob. Um, Ahwatukee is a suburb of a suburban city. Nestled against the backside of South Mountain, it is now part of the city of Phoenix, annexed in the late 1970s after a skirmish with Tempe. It was developed as a low-amenity, early-generation master plan community. Ten miles from Tempe and 15 from downtown Phoenix, it seemed far out when it was first built and so was initially marketed to retirees. The first houses that were built there are deed-restricted to people over 50 and were initially priced from the 50s. Today, Ahwatukee is a quintessential slice of suburban America. It has a broad variety of single-family homes, not very many jobs, an increasing number of apartments, a few decent restaurants, and a bunch of empty big-box stores. The schools are decent but underfunded, and the parks are crowded with sports teams but few trees. Ahwatukee is where I live. My wife Karen and I built a custom home there in the 1980s and raised our kids. Now we're empty nesters. My swimming pool doesn't get much use, but filling it in would disrupt the aesthetic of the backyard. I struggle to keep a small patch of grass green. The trend is to put in artificial turf, but it's shockingly expensive and still looks tacky, even when it includes fake thatch. I haven't installed solar panels yet. They would look out of place sticking above the parapets on my low Santa Fe style house. My backyard looks south of the city toward the Gila River Indian community and the farmlands of Pinal County. We can see the monsoon storms that swell up from the south in the summertime. On this particular evening, Karen and I stood out there hoping for rain. The temperature was still about 106 degrees. A massive wall of dust was coming up from the south, thousands of feet high. It looked like the wrath of God.
0: Yeah, I want to have you tell the story that ensues, but I wanted to point out that uh, Awataki sounds like, from your description, you know, like maybe, you know, Sandy or Draper, one of the uh, suburbs of uh, of Salt Lake City. So it sounds very yeah,
1: familiar. Yeah, you know, I don't know the suburbs of Salt Lake real well. I, I know the downtown area reasonably well. Uh, but I think, you know, Ahwatukee, as I say, it's a quintessential slice. It is uh, sort of the American suburbs, particularly in the western U.S., that were built in the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up into today, frankly. mm
0: so, uh, you we just got to the part where uh, you're getting to the, the the haboob. I guess is what we what we call it. As a kid, you say we call them dust storms, and you'd put on swim masks, go around, and run around in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, we would we would wait for them. We thought it was fun, um, and we'd go outside and uh, and run around in them. And they were the the term haboob only gained currency maybe 15 years ago or so, um, it is the, the term applied in the Middle East and the Arabian Peninsula to big dust storms. And the meteorologists in Phoenix started using it, uh, I say in the book, uh, partly because it sounds vaguely naughty um, and partly because it sounds kind of terrorist-related. It's just a more interesting uh, phrase. And the cover of the book has a picture of, of uh, the most dramatic of the haboobs that rolled into Phoenix in, I think, 2012 or 13 that made the the national news um, uh, evening newscast sort of looking like... uh, It's like that scene out of the movie The Mummy where the wall Mm -hmm. of dust comes and engulfs everyone.
0: Yeah, it it, it looks apocalyptic, uh, you know, I I guess. Yeah,
1: the reason I put it on the cover of the book, um, partly to grab people's attention, but partly because I think it's a metaphor for the way much of the country tends to see Phoenix, and that is... Um, as an illogical place that probably shouldn't exist. It was an article in the New York Times uh, two days ago about um, uh, Phoenix should not exist, was sort of one of the taglines at the beginning. But the truth is, when the haboob arrives, you go inside your house, you close your windows, you wait about 40 minutes, it blows through, and the biggest consequence is your swimming pool's really dirty. It, mm. it isn't a hurricane. It isn't a tornado. It isn't Uh, a catastrophic or cataclysmic event, by any means. Hmm.
0: You go on to, uh, maybe have you read this, it's uh, the next uh, paragraph down, to live in a city named after a bird,
1: that that paragraph. Sure. Um, To live in a city named after a bird that periodically immolates itself is to invite scrutiny. Phoenix is self-evidently a brand of improbability, fragility, impermanence. The city sits marooned in the desert, impossibly dry, dangerously hot, and presumptively unsustainable. It was named Phoenix because it sits atop the ruins of the Hohokam civilization that represented a several hundred thousand a several hundred year long adaptation to desert life based on growing crops with water from the Salt River. At their height, the Hohokam settlements included dense urban villages, sports venues, and even multi storied condos like Casa Grande their civilization sounds eerily familiar.
0: Then you go on to note that the, the that particular Hohokam uh, civilization sort of faded away at, at a certain yeah,
1: point. Yeah, you know, for a long time we weren't really clear on what had happened to the Hohokam civilization, and when um, Anglo settlement arrived in Phoenix uh, and began building canals to convey the water uh, for agricultural purposes, those those canals followed the paths that had been laid out by the Hohokam in their canals. It's now pretty clear that that what happened was not a sudden cataclysmic event, but a long-term decline in water supply um, that resulted in the Hohokam sort of resorting where they lived and maintaining the canals less well, and so over time it just kind of—their civilization kind of disappeared. A lot of people left. They resorted where they were. Um, the Native American communities of Central Arizona are descended from uh, what was left of the Hohokam after they had kind of reorganized their their civilization.
0: Mm. And so just to reiterate, and this, you hit it head-on in, in this uh, paragraph— Phoenix is self-evidently uh, a brand of improbability, fragility, and permanence. City sits marooned in the desert, uh, possibly dry, dangerously hot, presumptively unsustainable. And I think you, you hear about Phoenix, you hear about Las Vegas, other cities uh, take a hit when when we talk about sustainability and climate change, don't they? That why why are yeah. they Why are they there?
1: Yeah, I I think um I think there are a couple of reasons for that um and and one of the Part of the book, I I recite the litany of articles and criticisms of this, um, including uh, Andrew Ross's book Bird on Fire, about lessons from the world's least sustainable city, about Phoenix. Um, I think part of the dilemma is people don't understand how there can be a city in a place where it doesn't rain very much. And there is a shallow belief that, that a, a kind of a Eurocentric or East Coast perspective, that people should only live where it's cold and clammy and, and rains a fair amount, that it is um, uh, artificial to live elsewhere. I think there's a misperception that um, it takes less energy to live in a cold place than it does in a warm place. It's actually the opposite. Um, uh, there's a study, for example, is done out of the University of Michigan that compares Minneapolis and Miami and concludes Minneapolis takes almost three times as much energy uh, as Miami, which is on an, on an average temperature the hottest city in America. Phoenix reaches much higher temperatures in the summer. But, um, and I think some of this is just that these are new cities. They're not places where um, people have, uh, in, in American society, lived for a very long time. But there was a study uh, a while back about the sustainability of uh, of counties in America. We have very large counties in Arizona, and um, Maricopa County, where Phoenix is, um, th- this study by an engineering firm compared the amount of rain that falls with the amount of water that's used. And it then made an assumption about climate change and how much is rainfall going to decrease, and looked at Maricopa County and said, well, wow, this is this is really a massive challenge. Well, that's been true since the time of the Hohokam, uh, you know, that for 1,500 years, um, more water has been used in the greater Phoenix area than falls in rain in the greater Phoenix area. Uh, water's portable, so it's a really illogical way to view the sustainability of a place in a very um, shallow and superficial perspective on the sustainability of a place.
0: Want to get into your idea of uh, focusing more on resilience than sustainability? Uh, we have an email, however, and it's uh, this is a perfect time to bring this in. It's uh, it's on this theme that we've been talking about. This is from Steve. By the way, you can join the program. Hope that you will with your question or comment. Love to get your perspective. Uh, the book is "The Future of the Suburban City: Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix," and um, my guest is Grady Gamage Jr. Uh, So here's what Steve says. He's emailed us to upraxis at gmail.com, Upraxis at gmail.com. Steve says, all my life I've had a strong preference for cities which have an organic reason for being and consequently a focus and density. These cities tend to be built on a bend in the river. Uh, Paris, Rome, London, Moscow, Philadelphia, or on a port or harbor, New York, uh, San Francisco, Boston, Rotterdam, etc. Such cities are constrained by geography and the water which surrounds or runs through them, and this causes them to become dense and focused with a true identifiable downtown. And then there's their opposite, the sprawling cities, which lack both a focused density and a geographic raison d'être. These cities I neither enjoy nor understand, you're discussing Phoenix, but there are many others. Atlanta, which owes its existence to the accident of two intersecting railroad lines, is a good example. Houston, which exists only because Galveston is susceptible to hurricanes, is another. Then there's Los Angeles. Hmm. Why is there a Los Angeles? That's what uh, Steve says.
1: Um, yeah, so I, 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 I'm troubled again by the sort of superficiality of that reaction. Um, All cities are where they are for reasons. Um, Los Angeles is where it is um, because it was a spectacularly beautiful place. may not be the case with parts of Los Angeles today, but it had a a good natural harbor. Um, It is on the seacoast. I mean, cities are not randomly plunked down. Phoenix is where it is because it's on a river, um, it, we don't realize that anymore because we dammed the river up, but the, the reason it's where it is and the reason it was founded, um, you know, as I said earlier, 1,500 years ago, it is one of the longest continuously inhabited places uh, in North America because a river flowed here through a valley that is a broad and shallow plain, and you can divert water out of the river and grow crops. It is an agricultural place, um, and that's the history and and the reason um, Phoenix is here. I'm also troubled by what is a casual misperception in Steve's email that is frequently repeated, um, and that is that places like Phoenix are extraordinarily low density. Um, That's actually wrong. Uh, I spend a lot of time in the book debunking that. And it is also a perception of Los Angeles. Los Angeles is actually the highest-density metropolitan area in the United States on a metro-area basis. Now, obviously, Manhattan is much higher density, but the New York metro area includes Long Island, Connecticut, places where people live on 10 and 20 acres. Um, There are lots of places around the country where people live at very low densities um, but but immediately proximate to a metropolitan area uh, and may commute into town, for example. I, I often tell a story of a friend of mine who lived in Atlanta on an 80-acre farm but commuted to downtown. Um, that lifestyle does not exist in Phoenix. Um, Phoenix has an average urban density um, that is significantly higher than Portland or Seattle, Um, or Salt Lake, for that matter, uh, and a host of cities that are viewed as more urban. Um, 80% of the people in Phoenix live at densities higher than 80% of the people in Portland. Very rich people in Phoenix live on an acre of land. Um, And what's different about Phoenix, and this is equally true of Los Angeles, is that they're a more average density from the edge to the center. So one thing that I think Steve does hit fairly appropriately is that historically phoenix has had a weak and not very interesting downtown um the article that was in the new york times this week is about the city's efforts to turn that around and and it's finally beginning to happen we're finally beginning to build a serious downtown but what happened to to the post-war american cities the post automobile cities is that downtowns became less important because you could commute more easily in a dispersed pattern instead of in a hub-and-spoke pattern. And so that aspect, I think, is a legitimate criticism that that the downtown of a place like Phoenix has been weaker um, than older, more industrial cities.
0: Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Grady Gammage, Jr., his book is The Future of the Suburban City, Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix. Of course, many uh, exportable lessons from Phoenix to especially other cities in the West, including Salt Lake City and Las Vegas, uh, other cities. Uh, we'd love to get your perspective. Uh, thanks for that uh, email, Steve. Uh, he emailed, and you can as well, UPRAccess at gmail.com, Access at gmail.com. Our phone number, toll free, is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. When we come back, I'll ask uh, Mr. Gammage uh, his definition of resilience He prefers that over the the idea of sustainability Uh, and uh, want to get into some specific issues. And we'll talk, of course, about the heat, record-breaking heat, I believe, right now or has been in, in Phoenix, for example.
1: Yeah, it's really bad right now.
0: More following the break.
2: Welcome to Science by the Slice. The early bird gets the worm. Common North American sparrows called dark-eyed juncos assert their superiority early, says USU ornithologist Kimberly Sullivan. Short-term benefits may accrue to young birds that attain high dominance status early, she says, because juvenile birds that socially dominate their peers are more likely to be successful and efficient foragers, which helps them avoid predators. In addition, the assertive birds tend to be of a healthier weight and have higher oxygen-carrying capacities. These benefits make them more likely to survive harsh winters and become prolific breeders. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Etched Magazine, an artistic expression of life in the Southwest, celebrating desert dwellers, adventure seekers, soul searchers, art lovers, and the culture creators who reside within the grandeur of the great Southwest. More online at etchedmagazine.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Grady Gamage Jr. Uh, He is a senior sustainability scholar at Arizona State University's Julie Ann Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability, senior fellow at ASU's Morris Institute of Public Policy. He also teaches at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Uh, He is a practicing lawyer. He's a real estate developer, former elected official. Uh, And his book is The Future of the Suburban City, Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix, Uh, You're welcome to join this conversation. I hope that you will. Many uh, themes here resonate for uh, most cities, especially in the American West. And the the toll-free phone number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. And our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, uh, Grady Gammes, Jr., uh, this idea of resilience versus sustainability. What are you talking about there?
1: Yeah, it, the, the problem I have with the word sustainability is it, it, it implies a kind of static vision of, let's look at a place today and, and analyze a bunch of metrics and decide whether it's sustainable or not. And um, many of the ratings of cities from a sustainability perspective try to do that. And invariably, they disadvantage cities that are growing um, and cities that are are, um, are relatively new are viewed as unsustainable. Um, so, it, for example, there, there are rating systems that look at places like Houston, Los Angeles, Phoenix, um, cities that people are moving to, and look at the fact that infrastructure hasn't caught up to the number of people that are there, and therefore it must be unsustainable on the Other side of the ledger, you look at cities like uh, Detroit or Toledo that are shrinking, and they have a lot of excess infrastructure, and so they look more sustainable. Well, that doesn't seem to work very well. That whole kind of static um, snapshot of a city, I think, is not the right way to view sustainability. I like the word resilience better because it focuses on decisions that are made in a place, so Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, looks at, you were talking about this a little bit uh, in, the, uh, in a letter or a response to an email just prior to this segment, um, looks at why um, civilizations have collapsed over time. And there are these external threats and internal threats. They may be climate threats, they may be wars, they may be loss of a trading partner. But he says the most important factor in why um, societies have survived is how they respond to the threats that come up, and that's the factor of resilience. And it's, it's why at the end of the book I say, look, the real question of sustainability is not about geography or climate. It's about politics. Do you have a collective decision-making process that is able to react well to challenges as they arise? And, and frankly, the American West, the cities of the American West, are a great example of that. Um, we built the watering systems of the American West, the, the inherited legacy of the Bureau of Reclamation, to make it possible to live in a place that had climate challenges. Um, we um, it's, you know, subsidized air travel to make it possible to get to places that are more dispersed than was the case in the eastern u.s. or in northern europe um, we've consistently been able to find ways to react and respond uh... to make the the arid west of the u.s. Uh, a habitable place and that i think is a good example of resilience the question is can we still do that um, um, are we capable of doing that going into the future and and that i think is the thing that worries me the most about places like phoenix in the west is we now have fallen into this mindset of government is the problem, government is not the solution. Well, that's not the history of the American West. The history of American West is government is the solution.
0: Hmm. Uh, in fact, just to, to follow up on that, you, you uh, gave an interview to your publisher, Highland Press. Interesting points there. And said, if you, uh, I'm trying to find this here, but you uh, say that if, uh, here it is, if we're up to me, I'd get rid of the two-party system for managing government. You say that local government is usually more responsive to you know specific needs. Are you
1: there? Uh, yes. Oh uh, yes. So I, I, I'm sorry that ended very abruptly. Like oh
0: oh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, so you say if it were up to me, I'd get rid of yeah. the two party system for managing uh, government. Of course, you have experience with with local government and you know some contention. I believe you were involved in a in a when you were uh, chairman of the. Uh, of the Arizona Water Project. uh, There was a a lawsuit, right, federal government? Right. There's always contention, but your point was uh, the local government seems to work better, be more responsive.
1: Yeah, and the CAP is an example of that, but the the Central Arizona Project, which manages the Colorado River Canal that brings water to Phoenix, is a locally elected government. Um, It is a one-man, one-vote in the three urban counties of Arizona. And I was elected to the board, um, nonpartisan election. Uh, We had a pretty broad split of sort of uh, partisan perspectives, but it really didn't matter. You know, it was—it's like city government. Um, You know, potholes. People say potholes are not Republican or Democrat issue. They're potholes that need to be fixed. And running the canal um, and managing Arizona's water systems has been the most stable. Nonpartisan consensus um, in Arizona history. Yep. is sort of water's not a partisan issue. We all have to care about it. We all have to manage it. We all have to take care of it. Um, my, my sort of larger lesson that, that you were reading from is I, I'm just not convinced that the two-party system is any longer a good way to, to manage American society. Um, I, the current presidential election, Reinforces my view. Mm. So, yeah.
0: what? So, what? Uh, don't want to get too far diverted from the theme of the book, but this is interesting. What would you suggest in its place?
1: Well, so you know, California has now gone to the top two uh, primary system. The, the problem, let me tell you about Arizona, for example. The problem is that the partisan primaries create kind of a distillation loop. So, in Arizona, we now have more. Independents than we have either Republicans or Democrats. Um, it's sort of a third, a third, a third. Although there are more Independents, more Republicans, and then Democrats are the are, are the least in Arizona. Um, what happens then is you've got a third of the electorate that are registered Republicans. Um, only a, um, a, a a smaller fraction uh, of the people who are registered Republicans vote in the Republican primary. And you wind up with about 8% of the Republic, of the registered voters in Arizona deciding who the Republican candidates are. Um, and that's who gets elected, because we're a fairly conservative, fairly red state. And the people who care about um, the partisan primary are ideologues. They're not interested in... Um, managing the state for our sort of shared benefit. They're interested in making a point. Or I, I tell people Arizona is kind of a, um, a, a, a libertarian experiment and how little government can you get away with and how much can you lower taxes. Um, and, and, and that sort of then winds up with more and more people leaving the parties and registering as independents where they don't have much influence on who gets elected. And that's the distillation loop. We're tending to elect people with a smaller and smaller fraction of the electorate actually making decisions about who the candidates are.
0: Hmm. We do have an email. So I,
1: I would go yes. to the California sort of system that oh, they okay. have now, where everybody's in one primary and the top two vote-getters run off against each other. Maybe yeah. two Republicans, maybe two Democrats, maybe two Independents, maybe one of each. And whoever emerges from that is the is the winner.
0: I want to uh, just underline something you said just a a moment ago because I think it goes against conventional wisdom. Uh, You said cities are not unsustainable because of climate or geography, ultimately about politics. And I I want to, uh, before I have you respond to that, uh, underline that. uh, Here, page 125 of your book, this is uh, under the chapter on Jobs and Economy. You say there's a fatalistic view that Phoenix will crumble back in the desert landscape from which it arose. then you push back on that. And I I think maybe conventional wisdom, at least in the the green community, would be what we said before. Um, Hot and dry and water problems and heat problems in the desert. And how is that sustainable? Talking about Phoenix. Uh, so, So cities aren't unsustainable because of climate or geography. Maybe just underline that again.
1: Yeah, and let me me give you um, an example here of how I think a better way to view the question is. Phoenix is hot and dry. Climate change is likely to make it hotter and drier. Uh, While hot and dry is something we've dealt with for a very long time, Um, we are used to high temperatures. We are used to low rainfall. We have built a city based on managing an amplitude of climate variability that peaks into high temperatures and into uh, no rainfall at all for long periods of time. Um, For example, in central Arizona, we have in storage about 10 years' worth of urban water supply in underground and in reservoirs. Um, is that enough? Probably not, but it's about 10 years. Atlanta, five or six years ago, was down to 30 days worth of water in storage because Atlanta's used to existing in a place where it rains a lot. Well, in an era of climate change and an increased amplitude of variability in climate, a place like Phoenix that is built on variability and is built on realizing hot and dry. I think will be able to manage its way through somewhat hotter and somewhat drier than places that were built on an expectation of a relatively static climate model. Hmm. Another example is um, one of the challenges of climate change is going to be rising sea level. Well, that's a challenge that places like lower Manhattan are not, built the handle. That that hasn't happened dramatically before. Um, it will be very expensive and very difficult to manage against rising sea level in a lot of low-lying coastal cities, New Orleans, lower Manhattan, and places like that. In contrast, dealing with somewhat hotter and somewhat drier in Phoenix, I think we'll be able to cope with. <laughs>
0: Let me turn to an email that has come in from Alec. Uh, thank you, Alec. Uh, Alec uh, emailed upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, com. You can as well. The book, uh, by the way, is Future of the Suburban City. My guest be that was Grady Cabbage, Jr. This is what Alec says When discussing the cities that are in the desert and do not appear sustainable, a good example is St. George in southern Utah. I live there right now, says Alec, and Alec, rather, and there is a lot of discussion and planning going into building a pipeline to move water from Lake Powell to here. Lake Powell is apparently already dangerously low due to the drought uh, on the record heat. Um, St. George and Washington County in general use more water than the rest of Utah. Why should they be allowed to move water from an area that is already in need of it here in order to sustain the many... uh, that left lawns, uh, golf courses, and other such frivolous uses for waters beyond me. Perhaps the discussion of water usage needs to be brought more fully into reality. For example, how about stopping the churches from keeping these lush green lawns in the middle of the desert? So, Alec.
1: So, um, grass in the desert is a big uh, source of uh, of controversy. Um you may know that Las Vegas, for example, has spent more than $200 million now um, paying people to tear out grass. They pay uh, 2 to $3 a square foot, I think, to have grass removed. Um, there are cities in the Phoenix area that do, that do that. The city of Phoenix itself has not. But the incidence of new grass being planted has dramatically decreased um, over the last 20 years or so. And the uh, per capita consumption of water in Phoenix is down by 25 to 30% um, just through um, education and, um, to some degree, uh, rate increases. Um, it is important in a place like Phoenix to be able to manage against the heat island effect. So if you got rid of all the landscaping in Phoenix, it would be a very difficult place to live because you wouldn't have enough shade. And the the heat island, which is the increase in primarily nighttime low temperatures from pavement, um, exacerbates the the already hot climate. So you want to try to balance the extent to which you modify the landscape to make it cooler with um, um, water use for that modified landscape. And... I actually think we're we're beginning to develop a pretty good ethic of doing that. Trees use less water than grass and can moderate the heat island effect just as much. And most people in Phoenix today are not planting grass. Um, they are planting um, xeriscaping uh, and using drip irrigation systems. But there's also, I think, a relatively um, superficial concern. For example, grass at churches um, the real water user in the I mean, most of the American West is agriculture. Um, in Arizona, even in urban Arizona, uh, about 50% of our water goes to agriculture. And I, I, I'm not advocating that we should completely get rid of agriculture, but that is um, an a, a, a sector of the economy that uses um, vast amounts of water um, and um really has more consequential impact on um, water supply and the use of the Colorado River than um, any amount of urban landscaping does.
0: What about the, uh, the, the, the pipeline? Alec mentions this. this has been controversial, a proposed pipeline that would run water from Lake Powell to the, uh, to the St. George uh, area.
1: Yeah, so I don't know how much water they're talking about. Um, do you know in terms I, of acre-feet? I don't know. What I the don't. The would be, um, and, and nor do I know where the uh, the right to that water comes from. That the the lower basin states each have um, allocations. Utah is an upper basin state, so the allocations in the upper basin are handled differently than I'm used to in the lower basin. Lower basin is Nevada, uh, California, and Arizona. Utah, um, Colorado, New Mexico, Wyoming are the upper basin. And the the complexity of exactly how that's handled is um, governed by what, what we refer to as the law of the river, which is kind of this amorphous uh, set of court decrees and, and treaties and other kinds of things. I, I would not um, want to knee-jerk dismiss the idea of a pipeline to St. George. Uh, to supply water to people who want to live there. The, the history of the urban West is that that is the highest and best use of water, is for um, people, for drinking, for populations. We settled the West by using water for agriculture, and then we've urbanized based on that agricultural water supply. So I, I, I don't know enough about... The history of St. George, the source of the water, the length of the pipeline, the amount of water that would be used, all of those things need to be sort of carefully thought about. People tend to have knee-jerk reactions. I'll give you another example, the most recent one in Phoenix. We just had a Nestle company announce that they're going to put a bottling plant in Phoenix to make bottled water. And there was this outcry in the community of, oh, what a ridiculous waste of water. This is horrible. We shouldn't be doing this. We're in a drought. Um, really kind of a silly reaction. Um, there is more water used making the plastic in the water bottles than the water that's in the water bottles. The the negative reaction to bottled water should be about um, the plastics and about whether or not that's an appropriate um thing to do, but to use water for people to drink, uh, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And some people were concerned that, well, we're going to bottle water in Phoenix and export it somewhere else. Everything that we make has embedded water in it. Um, In California, the current big um, rallying cry is each almond has a gallon of water in it. And California exports a lot of almonds. We export a lot of nuts from Arizona. Grapes and wine have huge amounts of embedded water in them. Um, Beef, the ratio is something like 40 gallons of water in every ounce of beef. Um, You can't have an economy that exports products without exporting water, because water's in every one of those products. So it's just kind of... um, meaningless to have these immediate reactions that, oh, a new pipeline is bad, or, uh, oh, a, wa- a water bottling plant is bad. It's much more complex than that. Mm.
0: Just uh, finally on uh, water here, I want to following a break, which we'll get to soon, uh, I want to get into uh, transportation and heat, uh, some other issues uh, facing suburban cities. The book is The Future of the Suburban City. The author is Grady Gammage, uh, Jr. Uh, this is something you... Uh, Responding to this this interview, I've made reference to uh, you say we've lost sight of the fact that the point of government is to use collective action to manage through threats. The dramatic decline in urban water use throughout the arid West is the result of education, rate structures, incentives, and regulation. And so the the question is what what should suburban cities how should they manage water? I guess it would be all of those things that.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and, and each one needs to answer the question sort of for itself. Um, so, for example, Tucson is a world leader in um, minimizing uh, the use of water on a per capita basis by its citizens. Um, Tucson and Phoenix are very different. Tucson is not an agriculture. It's not a farming town. It was a mining town originally um and it's it's older than Phoenix and it it gets more rainfall than Phoenix. It has a little bit more moderate climate in the summer than Phoenix a little bit. I was down that direction yesterday it's still pretty hot um, and and so Tucson has a very aggressive what's called um incremental block pricing structure, so as you use more water, water gets more expensive. If you put that kind of pricing structure in Phoenix, people would quit. It, they, the, the landscape of Phoenix would die, the landscape that was created as a replacement to agricultural fields. That's probably not a great result for Phoenix because of the heat island effect. Um, you want to manage more slowly to uh, alter the landscape uh, of Phoenix. So those are similarly challenged places. Um, Phoenix has a much more robust water supply than Tucson does. Tucson used to exist almost entirely on, on mined groundwater um, which long-term is not a good thing because you mine it and it's eventually gone. And, and so they've had different um, collective responses to a similar challenge. Well, that's a perfect example of how government should react and should think about how to deal with um, the challenges of, of, uh, of climate
0: Let's take a break. When we come back more, we'll we'll try to fit in uh, heat and transportation, at least those two uh, topics. Uh, we are uh, running out of time, but uh, we will fit those two topics in following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival
2: Opera and Musical Theater in Logan presents Box, Mass, and B Minor, Tuesday, August 2nd, performed by American Festival Chorus, Utah Festival Orchestra, and
0: soloists. Conducted by Dr. Craig Jessup. Details at utahfestival.org. Avid shell collectors are pushing an iconic species towards extinction.
1: The biggest threat to the nautilus is absolutely overfishing for its shell.
2: Scientists often refer to this creature as a, a living fossil because they really haven't changed that much in the 500 million years they've been in existence.
0: Saving the exquisite nautilus before it's too late. I'm Steve Hurwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI.
1: Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Grady Gammage Jr., author uh, most recently of the book "The Future of the Suburban City: Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix." We have another about uh, six minutes left in the discussion, uh, so I want to, uh, to jump into discussion of, of the heat, and we're hearing you know record-setting heat in uh, in Phoenix. Um, I assume. <laughs> Just to survive, you got to have your air conditioner in, in in your house, and I don't know what in your car, right, to have that. Oh good yeah, repair. everything's air conditioned. Just and to try to find shade if you happen to be out and about. Uh,
1: yeah, and we all have to, you know, drink lots of water, and and we just don't go outside of it a whole lot right now. Uh,
0: so, so you in the in your chapter on on coping, it's titled "Coping with Heat." Uh, so you say that heat and poor air quality are related, and then heat and poor air quality also pose serious threats to the third cycle of sustainability, Trinity, social equity. Uh, so you've got you three problems in one there. How do, how do you solve that?
1: Well, um, I, again, I, I, I don't think you can solve it. I think you can manage it. Um, and uh, we've, we've been pretty good about that. I mean, Phoenix there is a different rhythm of life in the summer here than there is in the winter. Um, I'm, I'm looking out a window right now at a huge construction project at, at Arizona State University. And basically they start working about four in the morning and they quit at about 11 in the morning. Um, so you, you learn to deal with that. Um, and uh, we are having very high peak energy demand right now. Um, and the, the dilemma uh, here that the, the lapses into the social equity part of the, of the venn diagram you see of sustainability that sort of economy um, environment and social equity is that the real challenge is people who either don't have air conditioning or can't afford to run their air conditioning and back to one of my earlier points about this dichotomy in the way we view cooling and heating in society i think because heating has been around for a very long time since the discovery of fire it's viewed as natural and cooling is not viewed as natural, but it's viewed as artificial. And for example, a consequence of that is that there are many programs, federal programs uh, throughout the US, to provide um, subsidies for heat for people in cold climates. There are very many fewer to provide um, air conditioning for people in warm climates um, because air conditioning is still sort of viewed as frivolous uh, by a lot of the country. Mm. Well, to me, there's really no difference there. They both consume energy. They both have um, greenhouse gas emission consequences. Heating is actually considerably worse than cooling in that sense. They both have um, uh, man-made climate change consequences. Um, And both heating and cooling are necessary if you want to live in a lot of places in the United States. Uh, I, I think we ought to view them the same. Um, it is, right now in Phoenix, I don't know, today we may hit 114, 113, 114. Um, we were, for a while, going to be more like 120, but we didn't get there um, this last week. That's really, really hot. Um, whether that greater heat is uh, a, a clear harbinger of the future or not, we don't entirely know. But the, the biggest consequence of it is that people who want to go hiking need to be told, don't go hiking today. Um, You know, you could die out there on the trail. Stay inside, stay where it's shaded, stay where you can hydrate. And all those warnings are not that different than what you would hear in um, the winter in the upper Midwest. Um, There are times when places have uh, a climate that is life-threatening, and you need to manage your way through that.
0: Finally, I want to just get your maybe your one-minute version of transportation. We're just about out of t- out of time. You say that uh, drives you crazy that transportation discussions tend to divide into transit is a huge waste of money versus cars are evil. What uh, your one-minute version of what what the future is going to look like in suburban cities? Yeah.
1: So the future, I think, is going to be in a place like Phoenix. is going to be a combination of transit. We have light rail now. We're going to get uh, bus rapid transit. We're going to have some other rail systems. Salt Lake is a fabulous model of this. The track system is wonderful. I Think and has been really successful. Light rail in Phoenix has also been amazingly successful um, uh, for us. And in conjunction with that, um, the car is not going to go away. Uh, we're going to increasingly have cars that are powered by electricity, and we're increasingly going to have autonomous vehicles. And a place like Phoenix that has big, wide, well-maintained streets and an understandable grid where it's easy to get around, uh, is going to benefit from that future. Um, Phoenix is actually the least congested of the 20 big cities in the United States um, because we were a farming town and we have a, a grid of agricultural streets.
0: We will leave it there out of time. Much else interesting in the book. It's out from Island Press, The Future of the Suburban City Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix. Grady Gamage Jr. is the author and has joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, hope you join us tomorrow for the program. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah.
2: Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. You may have already heard the apocryphal tale of the young couple cooking their first holiday meal together. The woman was preparing a ham. Before she placed the meat in the oven, she took her sharpest knife and cut off the tip. The husband asked why she'd done it. She replied it was the way her mother had always cooked. Since the mother was visiting, they approached her and asked why she cut off the tips of hams before they went into the oven. The mother replied that her own mother had always done it the same way from the time she was a young girl. They decided to call the grandmother After they explained their question the grandmother laughed and replied that she cut off the tips of hams because it was the only way she could get the whole thing to fit in her little roasting pan. I picked up lots of habits watching my mother work in the kitchen. I open dusty cans by flipping them over and cutting open the bottom. When I peel a cucumber I leave little strips of dark green for bits of color. I buy one bag of chocolate chips for the family and hide a second one in the spice cupboard for my own personal use, just like my mom did. Which brings me to the washing of rice. My mom always rinsed rice in a strainer before cooking it, and therefore so do I. But I have no idea why. Am I just cutting off the tip of the proverbial ham with this extra step? Or is there a valid reason for washing rice? The short answer I found is that it depends on the type of rice and what you want to get out of it. Some people think that rinsing rice removes surface starch that causes stickiness. For most long grain and medium grain rice then, rinsing would be a good idea. But if you're using short grain rice to make something like risotto, you want a creamy texture and the extra stick, so don't rinse it. But in the days of yore, all white rice was processed with talc to give it a whiter appearance. Back then, rice needed a rinse to remove the powder. Most white rice grown in the U.S. is no longer milled that way, but in some imported rices, they are still processed with talc, powdered glucose, or rice powder. All safe to eat, but still, ew. So rinsing imported rice like jasmine and basmati to improve the flavor and avoid the powder sludge is a good idea. On the other hand, when white rice is milled today, the outer husk and bran layers are removed to produce a translucent grain. But this also removes vitamins and nutrients. To make milled white rice healthier, the United States requires processors to enrich it with vitamins and other nutrients, which appears as a dusty layer on the surface. So if you want to preserve those nutrients, don't rinse. Most recipes for Asian rice don't call for rinsing, since a certain amount of stickiness is a good thing. Rather, they have you soak the rice before cooking, Soaking is completely different from rinsing. It gives the grains a head start on cooking and yields a better texture. Some people like rinsing brown rice to remove any bran dust before cooking. Bran dust doesn't affect the rice as it cooks, so removing it or not is really more of a personal preference. But you should know that all rice has minuscule traces of another component that you will care about, arsenic. Rice plants leach arsenic from the soil in higher quantities than most other plants. So tiny amounts of this carcinogen is present in any rice you eat, especially brown rice, and especially that from the Southern United States. The amounts are so small that it isn't a huge problem unless rice is a major component of your daily diet, like it is for millions of people in Asian and Latin cultures. The current advice for those people is, yes, rinse your rice. Rinsing thoroughly can drop the arsenic level by 30%. Since my mom is of Anglo-Saxon origin, rice was only occasionally consumed at our house. But I still appreciate her effort to minimize the arsenic her children consumed. If that is actually why she did the rinse. More likely it was because that is how she saw her mom do it. I'll keep rinsing the rice for my kids and also teach them the reasons why so they can choose for themselves. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter.